Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. My name is Sunita and I live in Madanpur Khadan. And I work in NGO. There's a bazaar that is set up there, so I was going there to get a few things for 8th March. While I was returning, I got off from a rickshaw near a canal. There's a canal there. Um, when I got off there, and this uh, woman colleague was with me at that time, we were just talking about what we're going to do the next day, how we're going to plan for things. And we didn't realize when, but a guy came from ahead and broke my left breast and he was about to flee, but I got, but I caught him. Because I was hurt, I had felt what he had done and I had caught him. And I didn't let him go. We all know that women deal with violence on a daily basis. Even if we think that it doesn't happen to us, we know it happens to someone. I'm Ameya Nagarajan, and this is Hear Me Too, a podcast that explores the extent of violence against women in India, urban and rural, and the second and third level effects it has on our society and economy. I'm working in collaboration with UN Women as part of the 16 Days of Activism movement for 2018. any woman in India and she will have a story about public spaces. It could be that she was harassed. It could be that she had a curfew because it was dangerous after dark. It could be that she wasn't allowed to take public transport. It could be that she was just always on edge, always a little tense. Okay, let's be honest. That last one, that's all of us. Always. Public spaces are just not safe for women in India even conceptually. We inhabit them because we need to, or because we want to protest this lack of safety, but we are never allowed to forget the danger that they contain. This kind of violence is so deeply internalized that we never leave the house without a dupatta, because hey, that makes it easy enough to cover up when we're feeling weird. Higher class urban women won't leave the house without a brown. Other women make sure their hair is tied up so it can't be pulled and they don't wear bangles so they aren't cut if someone grabs a wrist and the bangles break. Some of us are angry about this. We want to change it. I'll tell you how to keep women safe, we say. Lock up all the men after dark. There's a poetic logic to that statement. But even so, how often do we think about the things we don't do because public spaces are unsafe? In the first episode, I spoke to economist Nishit Prakash about the economic consequences of violence against women in general. 
In our conversation, he mentioned an economist who carried out a very revealing study around the educational choices of girls in the national capital region. My name is Kirija Borkar. I'm an economist in the Development Research Group at the World Bank. In my study, I assess the educational costs associated with harassment um, by analyzing the college choices made by students in Delhi University. In terms of the extent of public space harassment, I find that 89% of female college students have faced some form of harassment while traveling in Delhi. Specifically, 63% of female students have experienced unwanted staring, 50% have received inappropriate comments, 40% have been touched, groped or grabbed, and 26% have been followed. I find that harassment imposes high costs on women's lives. First, it affects their physical mobility. As part of the same survey, I find that 72% of female students report avoiding an unsafe area because of the fear of harassment. And 67% avoid going out after dark, again, because of the fear of harassment in public spaces. But it's not just about women's physical mobility because safety also affects women's economic mobility. I see in my data that women on average attend lower ranked colleges than men with the same high school scores. And as it turns out, safety has a role to play in this. So I find that women are willing to go from a top 20% college to a bottom 50% college in order to feel safer while traveling to and from college. Women are also willing to incur an additional expense of 18,000 rupees on travel costs per year, again relative to men, in order to feel safer while traveling. So they choose to travel by more expensive modes like the metro uh, or by carpool. And while my paper focuses on women's college choice, the results actually have implications for many other economic decisions taken by women. So this includes choice of where to live, choice of where to work, and in fact, even the choice of whether to work or not, and can potentially help explain the low female labor force participation rates that we see in India. High ability women choosing to attend low quality colleges because of constraints such as public space safety affects women's academic training, network of peers, access to labor opportunities, and lifetime earnings. But if we just think of the whole economy, this is 50% of the labor force that is not getting the skills that they deserve. So this misallocation has consequences for long-term economic growth of India because it's affecting this 50% of the labor force's economic productivity. So when women need to hold back and think twice about being in public spaces, this affects literally everything that they do and it curtails their freedom. It helps the men in their lives to control them. It stops them from achieving financial emancipation and it exposes them to increased domestic violence. So what can we do about public spaces? I spoke to Anju Pandey, who's a program officer with UN Women. She told me that of the several issues with addressing violence against women in public spaces, the first issue is simply one of data or evidence. We need to build a database of the violence women face. We need to build up the evidence and see what happens and where and how it happens before we can properly address it. 
I think it's critical to record, to understand the varied forms from the everyday normalized sexism that they experience uh, on their way to the school, on their way to the market, at their workplaces, when they're going about their lives, um, anything and everything that they do. Essentially, while we've seen increased reporting, we need to invest in generating and recording data on the prevalence of violence against women in public. One of the issues with reporting is how deeply entrenched the idea is that it's your fault that something happened to you in a public space. What were you wearing? Did you miss a cue? Why didn't you take the other route? Why were you even there in the first place? It makes it hard for us, ourselves, privileged, urban, educated women, to report these things. Can you imagine what it's like for women who don't have our privileges? And when we do report, there's always social shame, there's victim blaming, and sometimes there's even harassment by the authorities. I think it's critical for us to be, um, you know, going uh, or carving uh, or drafting more comprehensive approaches to addressing the issue of understanding violence against women in public spaces. And which means, of course, also uh, to start with something as simple as what is our understanding of public spaces? Okay, what is a public space? Well, it could be a road a park, a shop, but it's also a bus, a train, a rickshaw, a courtyard, a place of worship, a hospital waiting room, a school, a mall, a cinema. And in every one of these places, we're always slightly worried in the backs of our minds. This is why, as Anju says, we need to unpack everything about public spaces and understand the gender aspects to them. That's a project that involves very many sectors, not just law and order. Everything from the government to transport, urban planning, education, health and sanitation. Remember that for many women, going to the toilet is something they must do in public spaces, or at least by passing through public spaces. I began to wonder, what are the laws that govern public spaces? So I went to find out. Uh, my name is Urmila Pulat and I'm a human rights lawyer and researcher. I work on issues of... Um, police violence, criminal justice reform, labor rights, and gender-based violence. Yes, we do have laws in India around what one can and cannot do in public spaces. And uh, several of them um, are gender-specific in that they define an offense as something that is committed by a man against the body or person of a woman. But of those that are uh, gender-neutral, uh, we have section, for instance, section 268, which defines what public nuisance is. And it talks about uh, public nuisance uh, by stating that a person is guilty of public nuisance uh, if they do any act uh, or is guilty of any, any legal omission which causes any common injury, danger or annoyance to the public. So here injury, danger uh, and especially annoyance uh, can be interpreted variously depending on who is interpreting. And in most cases uh, when a complaint of public nuisance comes, um, it's... Uh, up to the police to decide whether to book someone for public nuisance or not. The problem here is that the police have harassed women and couples in public under these very sections. Couples who have been affectionate in public could be booked under this act uh, simply because uh, they are thought of as being uh, causing an annoyance uh, uh, to the public. Further, uh, police acts, which are state acts, also have sections on... Uh, public indecency and public nuisance. Urmala gave me many examples of laws that could be used to protect women, 
being used to harass women and couples because of the moral policing inherent in our social norms. Essentially, since the police can decide what a public space is, they can twist these laws to their interests. And those interests are steered by the moral code and social norms of victim blaming and shaming that we have in India. Clearly, one big part of making public spaces safe is changing social norms. Anju again. And we must invest in uh, quality essential services for women survivors of violence. Uh, like, for example, all the work that is being done on the one-stop centers. But I think it's uh, equally critical to have large-scale prevention programs uh, that are focused on social norm and behavioral change, you know, which means uh, that we necessarily have to engage with and go beyond the binaries and look at what the role of the men and boys will be in issues of uh, addressing women's safety in public spaces, but also look at uh, you know, how we can work with other identities and also look at what those other intersections are, whether it is of caste or class or religion or even of abilities. But it's important to remember that this strategy needs to think in terms of making it safe for women to go out, of preventing violence against women and not end up policing women more and adding layers of rules and regulation to their choices you know, where we are not making it more protectionist and more surveillance for women and more, um, you know, pressing of the buttons, because that really does bother me. I don't want to be tracked, you know, as, as a woman, as a free citizen of this country. One way to think about changing social norms around public spaces is to just occupy them. This is what Shilpa Fatke and her colleagues researched in their project, Why Loiter? I and my colleagues Shilpa Ranade and Samira Khan began researching women's access to public space in Mumbai in the early 2000s. We discovered that women's access to public space was mediated by a very middle-class discourse of safety, which focused on the presence of particular kinds of women in public space as consumers and as white-collar professionals, and was also conditional upon women being respectable and women having a purpose in accessing public space. So it was okay to access public space purposefully and for work, but not for pleasure or for fun or to just hang out. As we continued our research on women's access to public space, we realized that what women needed, and we began to argue that what women needed in order to access public space was not conditional safety, which was conditional upon them being respectable, upon them being purposeful, but rather the right to take risks, which meant not that women should never be attacked, but that if we are attacked, we should receive a citizen's right to redress and nobody should question our right. We argued that no place was really safe. Women's homes were not safe. And data from across the world suggested that women's homes were, in fact, the most dangerous places for them. But we never ask women not to be at home, right? In fact, we urge them to be in that very place. And so we began to argue that maybe cities were hostile places for women. But women might still desire to be in these cities and that they should have the right to do so. We argue that what women needed in order to access public space was not conditional safety, but rather the right to take risks as citizens. 
they found that it was not only women who were excluded. Other marginal citizens were as well, some on the grounds that they were dangerous to women, including migrant, unemployed and Muslim men. And we realized that the only way in which women or we could claim unconditional access to public space for women is if everybody else could access public space unconditionally as well. And this included those people and groups that were seen or perceived to be unfriendly. Laws in India and many other places are suspicious of people who hang out in public spaces for, quote-unquote, no reason. These are people who are neither producing nor consuming, which is quite transgressive in our society today. When we first began to make our argument about loitering, um, I think a lot of people were very skeptical and this included feminist activists and feminist scholars who would look at us uh, with sort of expressions that range from incomprehension to horror and say, but why would you want to loiter? Even good men don't loiter. The assumption being that all every, anyone who is gainfully employed would not be hanging out on the streets. I think that by physically occupying the street with your body, something changes in your mind as well. The capacity to be on the streets, to engage with the, with the city, to own the city, to belong to the city, to have the city belong to you is an act of unparalleled and most exciting, uh, most exciting form of citizenship. Um, one of the things that Neha Singh always says, she says, you know, take back the night marches and all the rest of it is all very well. But for her, and she speaks for herself, really, she says, for me, there is no, uh, nothing I can compare to the act of being out there in public space, confronting my fears, uh, engaging my pleasures and being out in the streets on a regular basis, not as an act of uh, sort of uh, not as an act of collective protest, but as an act of individual claim staking. And I think that what she says is really very important. And what she's taught me really is that micro transformations matter. So today, let's all decide to make the micro transformations. Let's loiter. Let's occupy public space. Let's shake off our learned fear and stand tall. Because we have to give women this fundamental right, the right to occupy space. Next week, we look at the violence women face online. I'm Amea and this is Hear Me Too from Express Audio and UN Women India. If you like the show, Please do subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Express Podcasts. Or if you prefer email, you can write to us at podcasts at indianexpress.com.